This is Victoria of TheUnleashedHeart.com, and you're listening to Grieving Voices, a podcast for hurting hearts who desire to be heard, or anyone who wants to learn how to better support loved ones experiencing loss. As a 30-plus year griever and advanced grief recovery method specialist, I know how badly the conversation around grief needs to change. Through this podcast, I aim to educate grievers and non-grievers alike, spread hope, and inspire compassion toward those hurting. Lastly, by providing my heart with ears and this platform, grievers have the opportunity to share their wisdom and stories of loss and resiliency. How about we talk about grief like we talk about the weather? Let's get started. Hey, 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 welcome to Grieving Voices. It's another episode, and this week I have a special guest, Rachel Possessi. She is a certified life coach and the founder of the blog, Becoming Lime Strong, an empowerment hub for those who refuse to be defeated by their chronic illness. Rachel helps patients healing from a chronic illness discover ways to enhance their quality of life and shift from surviving to thriving by sharing tools and lessons learned from over a decade of being a chronic Lyme and toxic mold survivor. She lives in Central Oregon with her husband and French Bulldog. Welcome, Rachel. Thank you so much, Victoria. It's truly an honor. And I'm so glad to cover the topics that we're going to be talking about today because it really has not been covered. Um, The chronic illness piece is something that many, many people can identify and relate to. And so I feel like just based on the information that I've received from Rachel in advance of this interview, that um, this will be very helpful for many of you. So welcome again. Thank you for your time. Let's start from the beginning of your story. So I'm always interested too in how we learn as children about grief because Often that is what influences how we respond to it as adults. What were the lessons that you received about grief growing up? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I don't think it's really something that I've ever really given much. I hadn't really received any training on growing up. Um, You know, my um, grandmother passed away on my mom's side when I was in first grade. And I just remember feeling and kind of sensing, I remember my mom, you know, experiencing grief and taking walks outside of neighborhood. Um, but I didn't fully understand kind of what that meant. I just knew it meant sadness um, and maybe, you know, pulling away to, you know, take some time to yourself, to, you know, to reflect on that loss or that death. Um, but, you know, not a whole lot. Um, I think what I really was kind of led to believe was that grief was equated with death, but that there wasn't a whole lot of teaching on what happens when it's a loss of a dream or, you know, other losses that are often talked about. Um, And I feel like those are just as devastating in a lot of ways um, they can be. And so having teaching around all areas of loss or grief, I feel like is, really important to giving us the process and the space to be able to grieve that. And the communication, right? That's kind of what it comes down to really as well as, you know, being able to communicate how we're feeling as the parent and then to be there with you 
in whatever you may be feeling, right? How about when you got into your teen years, like if you had a boyfriend and they broke up with you or you didn't make it on the basketball team or like those types of experiences, did, did, was there more communication as you got older? You know, I think the next time that maybe an opportunity really came up was when I was in college, I was a camp counselor and it was um, actually this, the spouse of my grandma who had passed away in first grade, so my grandpa. And um, because I had spent more of my life with him, you know, being older at that age, um, I remember just being told, you know, we knew that it could really be at any point, you know, he was living with us and um, he, his health had been declining for quite a while and then ended up getting the call that he had passed away. And um, it was just, I remember, you know, really it hitting me and just feeling, um, you know, the loss of, of his life. Um, and, you know, even now, you know, even just yesterday, kind of having an interaction with someone who reminded me of my grandpa and just having that, that um, sentimental moment of missing him. And I hadn't really thought of him in a while like that. Um, and so just the reminder of that, you know, losses or death, that person never really leaves our life. They're always, they've always made impact um, on us and to, um, you know, give honor to that space and accepting ourselves um, when those moments hit us kind of unexpectedly. Did it feel more of like um, a family grieving experience then considering you were older at that time as opposed to when you were younger? More conversation, I guess, is kind of what I'm getting at. Was there more conversation about feelings amongst, as the, amongst the family members? You know, I, I know that I was um, living, you know, away from home at that point, an hour from home. And so not really, there was a memorial service held, but um, and definitely some tears shed and, you know, I think a slideshow. And so kind of in the memorial, I think there is more of an acceptance of being able to share in those emotions. But in general, um, I feel that there is kind of more of this idea of you cry alone or you don't really show the sadness. Um, or if you do, you apologize for it. Um, there's almost kind of this shaming that um, was not necessarily they weren't intentionally trying to shame, but it just kind of was a shameful issue to kind of show your grief in some, in front of someone else very openly. Um, so it's kind of more done in private um, instead of like this collective grieving. And that brings up a good point and kind of a point that I'm trying to highlight. And that's why I'm kind of bringing the question up in a couple different ways is that even if there is no conversation, it's like a non-versation. You know, we still are taking lessons from those non-versations, right? Mm -hmm. We're still learning through example of how to process what we're feeling. And like you said, and we grieve alone. And that's actually a myth of grief in what we are taught and what I teach in the grief recovery method. It's one of the myths. And that's why the program is built so brilliantly written because it applies to everybody almost nearly everybody, because we've all been taught generally the same things, you know, grieve alone, replace the loss, don't feel bad, you know, all these Mm -hmm. things, time heals all wounds. I mean, everyone knows the ending of that line, right? Yeah. It's universal teaching, really, unintentionally, 
But just for the example you just shared in that, when there isn't conversation, you're still teaching those things because when you're not talking about how you feel, you're grieving alone. That's the lesson then, right? Right, yeah. Unfortunately. I know that we're talking about loss of health and your chronic illness and things like that. Take us to the beginning for you when everything kind of started to snowball in that way. Yeah. So it was, it was a gradual process. I even remember, you know, being a kid and just feeling like I couldn't get enough sleep or I um, would lay down in the pew at church (laughs) and literally take a nap during church because I was so tired and I just thought that was normal. And, you know, my family kind of chalked it up to, I was going through a growth spurt. I needed extra rest Um, And that kind of continued through high school where I just felt like I couldn't sleep enough. And really where there was a a huge shifting point was in college where I ended up living in a dorm that uh, was older and had water damage um, and did end up having mold in it, which I didn't know at the time. But I remember um, feeling like I would just start having these crying spells where I I just like would start crying and I felt sad and I couldn't describe or figure out what was going on. I just thought maybe I was homesick or, um, you know, it was my first time away from home and I was pretty close with my family. And so it really was a progression. Um, by the time, let's see, I don't remember the exact details. I just know, I think it was the summer before my senior year of college, where um, I just was not doing well, I was sleeping, I could have slept 12 to 14 hours a day, and still wake up exhausted. Um, Somehow was still making it through college and passing my classes. But I just was, I just felt like I was surviving. I did feel at the time too, you know, I grew up in this area, but in the Pacific Northwest and kind of the Willamette Valley area, um, it's very damp and, you know, they call it, well, in Washington, I was just over the river in Vancouver, Washington, and they call it the evergreen state because there's so much rain. Um, it's beautiful, but as a result of the moisture, there's a lot more, um, it's more prone to, uh, you know, water damage buildings or flooding or which can create mold pretty fast. And long story short, I first found out that I had a gluten sensitivity and, um, since removing or taking out gluten out of my diet, it really was a huge, huge difference. I really noticed an immediate difference within um, a few weeks and um, wasn't, didn't really struggle with that fatigue or exhaustion that I did before. And it just so happened that that next year, I was also living in a newer dorm. And the, the first three years, um, they were all older places and um, had mold. <laughs> and so Um, come to find out later, I actually have a um, genetic predisposition to um, if I'm exposed to toxic mold, my body doesn't have the ability to detox it like a normal healthy immune system. And so it kind of just um, accumulates to this toxic level and puts more and more um, burden on the immune system. And so that senior year, when I took out gluten, I was out of a moldy environment, I felt the best I had in a a really long time. Um, But then I took, let's see, after I graduated, I ended up going to Colorado for a semester. 
and I'm doing a leadership school there and kind of figuring out what my next step was and then end up moving home for a while. And uh, then I ended up moving and deciding I wanted to go to grad school. And so I moved into this uh, cute little home built in the 50s. Um, <laughs> and you're probably, I guess, where this is going, but um, ended up getting so, so sick um, in that house. Um, kind of the tipping point was 2011, where it just felt like one thing after another and ended up having an unusually rare case of reoccurring appendicitis, which I did not know was possible. But my appendix, um, little did I know at the time was um, flaring up and like releasing toxins into my body and caused me to have um, fevers and extreme nausea and um, I just, I felt so sick. And the first time it happened, I, I was like, hmm, those symptoms sound an awful lot like appendicitis where my pain was and everything, but I slept it off. And somehow the next day I was like, I feel better. It must've been food poisoning or it must've been an ovarian cyst. And, um, but that kept happening over a series of six months where those same symptoms would come back, but I, they would kind of resolve. And so I, I ended up not, you know, against my better judgment or intuition, not going to the ER until that fourth time I was like, okay, this is ridiculous. I'm going to get answers if it's the last thing I do. And, um, while I was in that episode and sure enough, um, I, I want to be careful of how I word this without pointing blame because I know that my family was doing the best that they knew at the time for where they were at. But, um, I, my parents ended up coming to pick me up cause I was so sick and I was staying with them and we had planned to go um, on vacation as a family that next day. And, um, and my mom was a nurse, um, growing up before she had um, my sister and I, and so she kind of had this like, ah, suck it up, tough cookie, you're fine <laughs> mentality and kind of told me like, well, you know, I told her, mom, I really feel like I need to go to the emergency room. I feel like something's not right. And she said, um, well, uh, if you're not back by the time we leave, we're leaving without you. <laughs> and um, that's not really like her typical vibe, but that's just how she responded in the moment. And so I called my my middle sister crying and saying, will you take me to the emergency room? I feel like so sick. I can't drive myself. And so she took me, um, but she ended up dropping me off <laughs> instead of waiting with me. And um, I remember telling the emergency room nurse, like, well, it couldn't be appendicitis because I'd be dead. <laughs> but um, they did do a CT scan. And sure enough, it was indeed appendicitis. And he's like, this puppy needs to come out like right now. It is really bad. And um, so I ended up going to emergency surgery alone. And um, I know I don't need to apologize for any grief, but it still does get me that I ended up feeling so abandoned in that moment that no one believed me um, and didn't take me seriously that, you know, I really could have died. Um, but I trusted my gut and I went in and sure enough, you know, it was appendicitis and Mo, you know, most people today end up getting to do like a, um, a laparoscopic one, but because I had waited, it was so bad. They had to do a full open surgery with like a two inch scar on my, you know, my pelvis. Um, and, you know, I remember thinking after waking up, um, 
and surgery and seeing this beautiful sunset, like, ah, that was it. Like it's over, you know, I can resume my life, but little did I know that really was just the beginning. Um, and ended up, uh, really having one thing after another to my, you know, I moved, I, after I recovered from my surgery, went back to the house and, and was going to grad school and, um, my grades ended up, uh, plummeting. I'm a straight A student valedictorian and my had to, um, you know, basically end the semester without, um, being able to finish. And so I got like incomplete some, and so that kind of should have been a red flag that I just really wasn't myself. And so, you know, it's really a long story, but to kind of condense it, um, it really was, uh, the mold exposure that I was living in and, you know, coupled by my immune system was just being, and, you know, the appendicitis, I'm not sure where that came in, but, um, my immune system was just not happy. <laughs> um, and so really it got to the point where my health just kept declining and declining where I couldn't finish school. I had to stop working and just, I was truly desperate to figure out what was wrong. And I will, I will be honest. I think it is important to share, um, for other people listening, because I know it's really, um, it's really a lot more common than we think, but it got to the point where I didn't want to live anymore. Cause I was that sick. I had no quality of life. No one really fully understood or believed me or validated me. I really felt alone, um, and trying to figure this out all on my own. And I had been to 14 doctors at that point and still no one really understood it. Um, and so I guess to, to fast forward, I ended up, um, finding out a connection with the mold and realizing that that was a piece. And so I ended up moving out and moving back in with my parents and, um, it was a long journey, but, um, if you fast forward to 2013, I actually ended up getting away on a vacation with uh, my family to central Oregon. And I realized that I felt the best that I had in a very long time. My brain fog had kind of lifted and I felt more energy and my mood felt, I felt more like myself and kind of started to put the connection that, you know, in a high desert climate, it's so much more dry. There's, you know, there's not as much opportunity for, for mold growth, although it does happen, you know, perfect settings. But so I ended up deciding like, well, I have these two choices that I can stay where I was with you know, potential friends and family that I had and, you know, college friends I'd built a life with and a support system, um, but potentially stay sick or I could start over where I really didn't know anyone in central Oregon, but potentially recover my health. And that's what I chose. I decided to go for it. And um, it really was the best decision I could have made for myself. Um, that um, I didn't heal overnight, but that moved just really, and I guess in combination with that, once finding out that I did have that mold, um, you know, they call it mold biotoxin illness or another name is the IRS. So chronic inflammatory uh, response syndrome. Um, so since getting on a medication called cholestyramine, that basically 
binds up those toxins and um, allows your body to kind of excrete them out, slowly kind of reduce that toxic burden. Um, I was really noticing like, okay, we're barking up the right tree because I'm feeling so much better. Um, And then combined with the move, it wasn't overnight, but I would say over the next year or two, I was really, I was on the right path. I was um, feeling so much better. Um, and along that, that point, um, it's ironic, but I ended up meeting my, my now husband. Um, I ended up getting to the point where I did feel like, okay, like I'm getting my life back. They, my grad school actually let me finish my last year, um, online. So I was able to graduate and, um, I started dating this wonderful man and it felt like my life was, um, coming back. And, Um, after thinking, you know, I didn't want to live anymore. It really was just, it was such a second chance at life that I felt so grateful. And that's actually what ended up, um, you know, prompting me to become a coach was I promised myself that if I ever kick this, I, I have to go back and help other people who are struggling with this. It's, you know, it's so mysterious and, you know, it's growing in um, awareness, but you know, it's still unknown enough that so many people are going undiagnosed. It is such a long story, but um, I will just kind of conclude the story with saying that, you know, after feeling pretty good for a couple years and feeling like, okay, I'm in remission, my health's recovered, I'm doing well. I am kind of taking on more things in my life. I ended up relapsing really hard um, in 2018. And, um, I'm grateful for that relapse because I actually ended up finding out more puzzle pieces to my story that I didn't realize were at play. Um, and so before I'd known I had the, you know, the mold issue and the gluten sensitivity, and I had a thyroid issue that had caused, um, Hashimoto's for me and affected my ability, my inability to lose weight and just feel tired and, you know, depressed, things like that. But then in 2018, um, you know, I was also officially diagnosed with a few other things like chronic Lyme disease, and I ended up officially getting diagnosed for endometriosis and deciding to have surgery for that as well. Yeah, hormones were a huge factor as well. And um, a lot of people are familiar with their term PMS, but I, I finally got diagnosed with something called premenstrual dysphoric disorder, which is basically where for, uh, you know, at least two weeks out of every month leading up to your period, you experience um, extreme symptoms that uh, to the point where you can't press through it, you need some additional support to feel and behave normal in relationships and in life. And so um, that was a huge part of my healing as well as getting that diagnosed and getting the proper treatment. So it's been a really long journey. But you know, I think the person that I've become in the process and Um, the way that I really have been able to turn things around to bring a sense of purpose from this pain. You know, I definitely would not want to go through it again, but I realized that there is hope and each person that I'm able to inspire or give hope as a result of what I went through truly does make the suffering worth it. And it redeems all of that suffering. (laughs) So I know that was a long answer, but it's hard to condense all of that. Well, no, I mean, your and your list of what you've been diagnosed with, it's like, and, 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 and 
my heart goes out to you. I cannot imagine how you probably felt like you were kind of going crazy. I, I mean, am I yeah. right? Yeah. You know, I think that, um, it, I did have the conversation with my family where they, at one point they did question my sanity of like, you know, can we really believe like, is this in her head? And it was incredibly invalidating. And I think that I think being met with that and especially being the youngest in my family, I think it's just, it was um, easier for them to kind of just chalk it up to, ah, she's being overdramatic or, you know, like she just wants attention or over the years as I actually was validated and getting a diagnosis and then having um, a positive response to the treatment, I really learned to trust my own voice and to trust my intuition, even if no one believes me or understands because my intuition has gotten me to where I am today. And I would not be uh, where I am today um, or honestly, even still here had I not trusted that. And you mentioned something too in your form about mast cell activation syndrome. Yes. Thank you. I forgot to mention that one. Yeah. So I'm curious. Um, That's why I brought it up. Yeah. So that, um, I want to say that was in July of last year. I've kind of lost track, but basically that is where, you know, mast cells, you know, have to do with the immune system. And when they become hypersensitive, um, because your immune system is not functioning properly, you react to things that you wouldn't normally react to. Um, and so like in the environment, like in the environment, yeah, in the environment and also in foods. And so I ended up having a weekend where I, I had heard of like, uh, histamines before, you know, people take over the counter antihistamines. And so basically if you, um, eat a lot of foods that are high in histamines that are such as like fermented foods, like um, yogurt or um, sauerkraut or even things like chocolate or tomatoes, just like these random things that they're, they just happen to um, be higher in histamines. If you have mast cell activation syndrome, it can cause things to go haywire. And so I actually, um, I had a week, a wedding that I attended over the weekend. I don't normally drink alcohol, but I did drink like one or two drinks for a wedding and then for like 4th of July and accumulating um, those after four days on Monday um, in the morning when I did my normal routine, I ate, you know, my same goat yogurt and um, my hot lemon water. And then I think a cup of caffeinated tea um, and I took my vitamins or my supplements for the day. I ended up having what I believe was like an anaphylaxis response or reaction where uh, I never had anything like this in my life, but it felt like my throat was starting to close in. I looked at my hands and they got all itchy and swollen. And I looked in the mirror and my face looked like I had been sunburned like a raccoon. It was like beet red. And I knew I was having allergic reaction. It was so scary. I was home alone and I just thought of the movie and Hitch where he has allergic reaction to shellfish and ended up like drinking a bottle of Benadryl. And luckily I had a liquid bottle on me for my dog in case he gets stung by a bee. And so um, sure enough, I ended up drinking that and it was enough to, you know, keep things at bay. And 
um, ended up going to urgent care just in case and getting an EpiPen and in case because sometimes with those sort of things, they can escalate after each exposure. And so luckily, you know, after finding out that that really was an issue at play on top of all these other things, I've been able to, you know, through treatments and taking antihistamines, been able to keep that stabilized. So I don't get to that point again and trying to limit, you know, if I only have like one food high in histamines a day, um, that can really help. <laughs> so it doesn't get crazy again, but, um, it was really scary. Thank you for sharing that. Cause I, I just, you know, just in case someone listening, that can be very helpful to someone. So I wanted to be sure to bring that piece up too. What role did you make any connection to like stress and then your body's response to your environment? Like, you know, like, does that, how does that exasperate it for you? Um, like, and what does your self-care regimen look like now that you know all these mm-hmm. things? Yeah, I would say for sure stress, you know, whatever, whatever form of stress that looks like um, can definitely be a factor for some people. Um, I think I'm careful to, I think for people who haven't experienced illness, I think I experienced so much just hurtful or harmful messages of almost jumping to like, okay, well, are you doing yoga? You know, are you like going to the quick fixes or like the basic foundational things? And, and it was just like, if you only knew, (laughs) Uh, um, so definitely stress can be a factor, but it's not, you know, it's not the only thing for sure. Um, but, um, I would say in the last six months to a year, I think I've learned more than ever how emotional stress or relational stress, um, and specifically a lack of boundaries can just wreak havoc on, on our lives, but especially our health. And, um, and so I think for me, Lately, that's been the biggest thing that I've been focusing on. And, you know, kind of each, each part of healing, you know, has its different components and, and it is integral and holistic to kind of, um, you know, look at all ways that we can heal. But um, I think that this one really is underestimated in the power of, you know, how resentment or anger can pop up and that can harbor and it really has to unless we're releasing that in healthy ways, it has to go somewhere. And if we don't release it, I really do believe that it can just make um, illness so much worse. And so um, I recently read a book that just changed my entire perspective and it's called setting boundaries will set you free by Nancy Levin. And really one thing that I learned is that anger is a, is a red flag and indicator to us that we've had a boundary violated and we're actually responsible for allowing that boundary to be crossed by not setting a boundary. And she talks about how, even if an, you know, if we set a boundary and, you know, we tell the other person, when you do this, I feel this, you know, would you please do such and such in the future? If the person doesn't respond with, Oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't realize that, you know, that caused you to feel that way. 
I will definitely work on not doing that again. And, you know, if they give us a little flack for it of like, well, who's hypersensitive now, or, you know, they give us more blaming or shaming as a result. The goal is not to get them to agree. It's how, how are we still in control of the situation in ourselves to how will we protect ourselves in the future if that situation happens again? And so, you know, if that, if that person's not willing, what does that look like for us? Does that mean hanging up on the phone? Does that mean walking away? Whatever we have to do to protect ourselves and our sanity and our emotional and mental health is, is needed and to, to not feel bad, like a bad person for doing that or feel guilty. Um, and even if we do feel guilty, that's a good sign that we're actually standing up for ourselves. Amen. I agree <laughs> with all of that because uh, that's I deal with emotions, right, in the work that I do. Mm-hmm. Um, even as a Reiki master, energy, energy, you know, emotions have energy, our thoughts have energy. Um, and in grief recovery, we say that resentment is a poison that you take mm-hmm. wishing the other person dies. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's toxic only to ourselves. It's really only hurting ourselves. It's and true. Yeah. so how to process that, how to channel it, how to let it not dictate, you know, our day and how we mm-hmm. show up in the world. Because, you know, when we are angry, we show up in the world angry, right? Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah. Our inner climate, you can see it on the outside. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I think that, one thing that's not often talked about is, you know, I think most people are so afraid of, you know, the consequences of setting that boundary um, of, you know, the other person will cut them off or how they'll respond or get mad at them. It's kind of this people pleasing mentality in us, but actually on the result is actually a more authentic, sustainable relationship because we're no longer showing up resentful you know, we're showing up more true to who we are and that actually serves the relationship better in the long run. Um, but more importantly, protecting ourselves, but you're, you're exactly right that it, we are the one who suffers and we're the ones who allow it to happen if we don't stop it. Um, so taking that ownership into creating changes where we feel someone's making us feel angry or resentful or violated. On a recent podcast interview with um, a gentleman, I it was the thought came up that you know my podcast is grieving voices and it's all about normalizing grief. You know it's normal and natural, but I think too it's also about normalizing emotional honesty. Mm-hmm. Just the fact that let's just normalize being honest because I don't like to be lied to. You don't like to be lied to. Nobody likes to be lied to. Yet we lie to each other all the time when. Someone genuinely, well, and here's the thing too about genuinely, but like I would genuinely ask, like, how are you today? How are you feeling? And to most people, it's like, oh, okay. You know, it's just conversation, small talk. It's the same old question. I'm fine. So that's how we respond. I'm fine. Rather than really digging into, oh, really, you know, and and I have done that. Like I can, no, something's off. What's going on? You want to talk about it? You know, and if not, that's okay. I'll just sit here. I'm going to send you a joke though. I'll tell you a joke (laughs) because that's my nature. Like, 
I see you're down. You're not going to talk about it, but I'm going to send you something to make you laugh. <laughs> and that's kind of how I like, you know, just I'm here for you. Right. Um, I read an excellent book too, after I went through the grief recovery method myself the program, that's where I learned I didn't have boundaries and I needed boundaries. And um, the book is actually called boundaries Oh, by cloud and Townsend. Mm-hmm. Um, I can show you that later. I'd have to actually reach it. I should have had it within my arm's reach, but um, that was eye opening for me as well. Let's shift gears a little bit. And a, a lot of your grief story is revolved around loss of health and things like that. But what was the, like the ripple effects of that? I know you mentioned you had to, you know, stop school for a while and your job. Um, really, what was the impact of chronic illness for you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's, it was after actually I ended up going back to school to become a life coach that I learned about something called the wheel of life. And it's a, it's a circle with, um, you know, pieces of pie that kind of categorize every area of our life. So there's like, you know, relationships and finances and career and, you know, profession and um, fun and enjoyment. And, you know, there's all these areas. And I realized after going into my second um, relapse that really there was not one area of that pie that was not affected. It, um, I think that's what's so overwhelming about illness is that it really shakes not just your mentality of the world and how you, you know, your dreams and your goals and what you thought that you would achieve, you know, maybe by a certain point in your life. Um, and your identity with that. Um, but just everything, you know, your finances where you're putting so many of so much of your finances towards getting better. Um, or maybe you aren't able, you're too sick to work. And so you're not getting that income, um, or, you know, relationships where, um, I don't think I've met a single person specifically with Lyme, but really with chronic illness, who's not been, impact in the relation relational, you know, sphere, uh, having lost relationships or having to cut off relationships that just were no longer loving or serving them in that place. Um, and, you know, I think just the quality of life factor of when like the rugs kind of pulled out from under you and what you have known of normal or your life to be is drastically different. Um, And so obviously, you know, depending on the extent of, you know, if people were bedridden or maybe they were hospitalized for a certain period of time or they're, they um, live alone or they haven't been able to find, you know, a life partner who really can meet them and see beyond their illness to see who they are. It's just, it is such a painful thing. There's a quote that says um, something along the lines of, Uh, Most people have 10,000 dreams, but for someone who's unwell, they have one and it's to get well. And once you lose that, you know, that health, really everything else is kind of seen differently. And yeah, I I would just say the exponential ripple effects is, um, I can't even really explain to um, how much it impacts 
Well, and then not just that, but then normal life experience outside of that. So it's not mm-hmm. only just chronic illness and all of the ripples from that, mm-hmm. but then it's just the curveballs, sometimes the softballs that are thrown directly at you. You know, mm-hmm. if we lose a loved one or, I mean, and then that's another layer of yeah. what's already there and what the suffering that you've already had to go through and all of that. So um Right. How have you, I mean, have you had like the losses, grieving experiences since you've known all of this and how have you managed all of that? Yeah, absolutely. And so this year, you know, 2020, I feel like for most people has been (laughs) unprecedented. And, um, you know, this year uh, I got engaged last fall and my husband and I, um, had planned to get married in March and that's right when COVID hit, um, really since the beginning of 2020 till now it's, it's been, it's been an onslaught where my grandpa passed away and then, um, Nathan's grandma was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and was given less than six months to live. And, um, and then, the wedding that we planned and dreamed ended up getting ripped out from under us. And, um, our venue canceled on us five days before because of COVID and our limits were put down to 10. And so we basically ended up having to essentially elope (laughs) after spending six months, like doing nothing but wedding planning. Um, and then after, so we ended up having like this intimate ceremony, we had planned to have just, you know, my immediate family and Nathan's immediate family. And then found out the week of the wedding, my sister's family had COVID or we didn't know it had tested positive at that point, but they had all the symptoms. And so we ended up having to make the really hard decision of like, they can't come, you know, we can't all get this. Um, And so we thought, okay, we'll do a reception later to celebrate with everyone. And we just hit the timing wrong every time where they started to open things back up. Um, but then right when the date hit for the reception, they put the limits back down to 10 again. And then so I thought, okay, we'll reschedule to September. And then the same thing happened. (laughs) Um, and so it's somewhat comical. Now I'm able to kind of look back and be like, man, this is like a comedy. (laughs) It's just, I I wanted to say like, oh my gosh, you you know, it's like, you're able to laugh about it. And that's, that's wonderful. And I'm sure at the time it was nothing but laughter or anything but laughter. Excuse me. (laughs) So it's taken definitely some time, um, to, you know, allow myself to grieve that and be like, you know, generally every little girl imagines her wedding day. And I mean, we did, you know, it was our choice to choose to proceed anyways, but, and we are so glad that we just decided to get married. We didn't know how long COVID would last. And, um, but yeah, it has come with just a lot of hard losses on top of just managing illness. And are you able to like throughout all of that stress and the losses in the family this year, especially, have like you're able now to manage your symptoms like right is yeah like how do you manage your symptoms I guess maybe it's the better question so about the time that I got engaged um I really just wanted because I was really treating now that I knew I had Lyme I really wanted to continue to treat to get as well as I could be And, um, you know after I had endometriosis surgery and then I also had another surgery for 
in my jaw for jaw cavitations, which I won't get into, but, um, those actually made a tremendous improvement in my health. And I was able to kind of get back to a good baseline again and basically took a year off from treatment. Um, cause treatment can make you feel a lot worse, um, while you're going through it, almost like chemo, um, you can feel sick while you're going through it. And so I decided since I was feeling well enough that I just wanted to have an engagement, you know, and, you know, some months of marriage to just be able to enjoy as much as I could. Um, and so I have been, I guess now that I have kind of these underlying pieces that I, um, found treatment for, um, I was able to kind of keep things at bay and it was definitely not without symptoms, but compared to where I was, I mean, it's, it's a huge difference. So I think I'm, I'm at this point where I, um, I'm going to be starting, um, treatment again, and I have chosen to actually through a lot of just healing and, you know, therapeutic release. And, um, I think especially having grown up in a home where I, I didn't always feel, you know, I felt unheard a lot. And as the youngest, I, I wasn't always taken seriously. I think there's such a power of being able to share your voice and use that to, um, you know, to speak to people who maybe feel the same way or also feel unheard or haven't learned to trust their own voice, their own intuition. And so, um, you know, creating this empowerment space where people can, you know, decide together where we're going to refuse to be defeated by chronic illness and we're going to find ways to thrive instead of just survive through illness um, and life. Um, and so I will say that, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not a hundred percent better, but I feel like there's, you know, as I'm going through healing and treatment, there's almost this credibility of I'm, I'm kind of, I'm going through the trenches, you know, with people. And I think there's that relatability that we can kind of meet each other in the hard places. But I think the tools that I've gained as a result of becoming a coach have, you know, are a game changer. And I'm able to, you know, now that I relapsed and then, you know, went in remission a second time, I really believe that the tools that I gained as a result of becoming a coach and were what allowed me to do that um, and to get back up and, um, you know, to find ways to thrive again. And I really, I really want that for, you know, others to, to realize that um, they don't just have to go through every day feeling this level of desperation, despair. There, there are tools and ways to help yourself feel empowered, even, even while you're going through hard things. I'm the baby too. I get you. <laughs> oh yeah. I get I you there. Mm. Um, and I was going to say too, it took you many years to get to where you are now. Like it was many years of chronic illness. Yeah. And it's like, it's going to take probably even, well, hopefully not as many, but <laughs> You know, you can speed it up when you're, when you know what you're dealing with, but it's going to take time also to undo that, right? Undo the damage that had been done. Mm -hmm. Um, And I know you mentioned too about, um, and I didn't realize this, like 
Um, but there's a risk in having a baby with congenital Lyme when you yourself have Lyme disease. Yeah. So, um, there's research now it's somewhat, um, well, it was somewhat controversial, but actually now the CDC does have, um, a diagnosis code for a baby that has gotten Lyme from its mother. Um, and so it's, the research does show that it, it is indeed a possibility and a risk factor for sure. And, um, they're researching new ways of how to decrease that risk, but, um, there's never a guarantee to know for sure that, you know, if you, um, if you don't put Lyme into remission prior to getting pregnant, that, that, that baby or child might also have, um, Lyme as a result of, um, being born in utero through its mama. Um, and so I think now that I'm, you know, married that, you know, thinking I've always wanted to be, you know, wife and a mom, but I think just, it's been so sobering of thinking like, not only has it been my life, but imagining giving what I've been through to a child. I just, I just can't imagine. And so it's given me, you know, motivation to, to want to get myself as healthy as I possibly can and do my best to put Lyme into remission, you know, in the next one to two years, um, it's kind of my, my timeline of, um, treating as best I can. Um, you know, it's kind of, it's in God's hands after that, I guess, you know, of what ultimately happens, but to know that I'm, I'm doing as much as I can to be, to be wise and responsible. Um, and I've, you know, I'm in some Facebook groups with people who've been able to share from their experiences and it's just really heart wrenching, you know, hearing their stories and some who have, um, you know, have children who, who are sick now. Um, and some say they would have, after having gone through that, they would have rather just adopted or not had kids at all. Um, which is just, you know, everyone it's, it's just so painful, I think, to think about, you know, when you're a newlywed to having to think about that on top of just everything else is, is very overwhelming. I really want to be, I want to honor that desire that I, I've always wanted kids. And if that's something that um, is, I guess, is a part of my future, um, then I want to do what I can to set myself up for success. Um, I was going to ask too, if someone listening who's like not sure of a diagnosis and are just listening and kind of pondering, well, I wonder if that's my, that's, I wonder if this applies to me. Can you give just like a, a synopsis of what it feels like to have chronic Lyme disease or, um, I mean, you kind of discussed the mold biotoxin illness, like your symptoms growing up and stuff, but what about the chronic um, Lyme disease? Yeah, great question. So there are so many symptoms that can be manifested as a result of having chronic Lyme. So I guess I want to quickly distinguish that um, there's basically two types of Lyme. And so if someone gets an exposure to Lyme, maybe they got bit by a tick or even a mosquito or there's, they're thinking now that um, it can be transferred even through like spiders. Generally, only 17% of people get what they call the bullseye rash, which is like the 
kind of famous rash that is known for, you know, getting bit by tick or having Lyme. And so if such a small percentage of people are lucky enough to get a rash to know that they were bit or to even find a tick on them, they can get the proper treatment of getting antibiotics. The problem is, um, you know, most people don't, there's a very small treatment window. Most people either don't get that rash or they never knew that they were bit. And so um, if they miss that opportunity treatment window, that's where it basically goes into this chronic phase where it, it literally is incurable for life. Um, you, you know, people can put it into remission um, and basically be symptom free, but it is incurable. And so it's obviously there's a lot to talk about with prevention, but just getting into the symptoms, they call chronic Lyme the great imitator because there are so many symptoms that overlap with it. A lot of people don't realize that um, that Lyme might be the underlying cause of any of the other symptoms that they have. So a lot of people will first get an autoimmune diagnosis if they've not been properly diagnosed. And I'll get to testing in a second because testing is the other problem that makes it so difficult is not great testing out there. So some of the symptoms you might experience is fevers, um, migrating pain that moves throughout your body or is in different places, um, chronic fatigue, brain fog, um, mood issues, um, anxiety, um, sleep disturbances, night sweats. I mean, there's so many <laughs> possible symptoms. Um, and I guess I could, I could even list, um, if you're interested, there's a sheet that kind of goes through every system of the body with the different symptoms that you may experience, um, that are, you know, correlated with Lyme. Um, but it, the reason that so many symptoms is it literally can wreak havoc on every system in your body. And so, you know, from reproductive issues, you know, with like, um, endometriosis and things like that, or, um, migraine headaches, like uh, blurry vision, <laughs> the list goes on. Oh my gosh. Um, Even endometriosis? Yeah. So there is like a correlation. What I've been finding is that especially, especially if there's like an underlying genetic um, component that makes someone more susceptible to it. A lot of these uh, happen to be all at play. So let's say like mast cell activation syndrome does have like a correlation with endometriosis and um, also like gluten sensitivity and Hashimoto's. Like I have several friends who have all of those same conditions. And I don't think that that's a coincidence. I do think that, you know, when the, when the immune system is off that it just really can affect so many different systems and manifest in, in these ways with autoimmune conditions. And so you know, each person, it does look different. And some people actually can manifest in like seizures. Um, and just, you know, or ana anaphylaxis. So, you know, going off the top of my head, it, it's, it's really kind of hard, because um, not every one person looks the same, but generally, there is some overlap. And generally, people can look back to a certain point when their, their health dramatically or slowly shifted. Um, and a lot of people will say, Oh, well, I was bit by tick when I was five. Or they'll remember like, you know, some sort of instance where they may have had exposure. And so for me, I, I don't really know what that was. 
of when I was exposed. Um, I do know that three people I studied abroad um, in Bolivia and three people out of my 10 person team, I do know now three of us out of 10 have chronic Lyme disease. So I don't know if there's a way that we could have experienced exposure on that trip, but we've been able to kind of journey together through healing and helping each other with, um, you know, treatments that have worked for us. So there's, it's just the tip of the iceberg, but, um, I will say there is a lab that, um, I finally was able to get a positive diagnosis with. And so it's called DNA connections and they use a different technology where they look for the DNA of the Borrelia and they can help provoke it through, you know, like a deep tissue massage or an infrared sauna to kind of have um, any bacteria that's kind of in hiding to kind of show itself. So it'll come up um, on the test. I know some people have had luck with a test called Igenics. Um, I actually was one of the, yeah, those that got it equivocal. Um, even though actually in hindsight, when I look back, I actually had five positive bands for Lyme. And I think they say you need two for a positive test. And I had five. So I think it really just takes, you know, a skilled doctor to, you know, through there's an organization called ILADS that um, does more, more education around chronic Lyme, not just the acute phase Lyme, because the CDC hasn't for a while recognized the chronic late stage Lyme. So there's a lot, there's a lot of politics that make it more complicated, but um, yeah, that, that's just kind of a nutshell. Well, and to add to the complication, you know, just in the work that I do, I know that grief manifests in our body and grief changes us at a cellular level. Mm. And just in what I've been learning about energy and energy work and things like that, it can be very like what I, what I've been pondering lately is because there is this mind body connection. I don't think anyone can deny that. Like if we're having a thought, it is reflected in our body. Like we have a physical reaction to anger, especially like we physically have a response to anger Uh and our stress level goes up all of these things. So if we're in that chronic state of anger or when in that chronic heightened emotional state, you know, it's Mm -hmm. that flight or fight or flight. And if we're always in that fight, um, do you think that there is a correlation between the mind body connection, emotional stress being a trigger for autoimmune? Absolutely. I absolutely do see the correlation. And I think it really wasn't until going through my life coach training that I fully did grasp that and how I think in the past, if someone told me, you know, that I need to shift my mindset on how I perceived my illness, I would not have taken it very well. But I think having gone through and realizing that by just um, by choosing not just to react, but by choosing how we show up and how we perceive something, it really does affect how we how we act or don't act. And if we feel like we've been victimized, and rightly so, and, you know, in many cases with illness where we didn't choose this, um, this happened to us, you know, so there is 
There's a lot of valid reasons to be upset about a diagnosis, but often realizing that when we stay in that place, we almost have tunnel vision where we're not able to see the very solutions that we need to get as well. And I found that um, there's actually an assessment that I use with my clients now that can help figure out, um, you know, what kind of mindset they're, they're showing up. It's an attitudinal assessment. And so one of the ways that I found most helpful and actually didn't even realize at the time that I was using this was that when I was going through my darkest days, really the only thing that kept me going was believing that someday I was going to be able to help someone else. And I didn't realize that that was actually a coping mechanism for, for moving forward and choosing hope and knowing. So there's this um, mindset where it's an opportunist mindset and realizing that you can reframe something to believing that something good, something beautiful, something positive is happening as a result of this. And it's not just happening to you. It's happening for you so that, you know, maybe this is a part of your calling and how you can help other people. And so that's, that's kind of just a little example of how, you know, mindset really does make a major factor. And I, the more that I've been able to study this, the more I am passionate about helping to empower others with that knowledge and knowing that they can choose how they show up. And it's so much more satisfying and life is so much more fulfilling with that, that it's almost like we put on, I have my computer glasses here and it's almost like we put on a different pair of glasses and we can see the world or our illness in a different way. And as a result, we see it differently. We feel differently, like you're saying, and we respond differently as a result. We make different choices. It's really powerful. It is. I can speak personally, my experience it took me many years to get there though. And maybe, and obviously probably for you too, or for many people, it's, yeah. it, you don't just one day and maybe you have like this life-changing moment, but does it take a life-changing moment to shift your perspective? Mm-hmm. I don't think so. Although that often is the case, you know, sometimes we just have another loss. That's like, Oh, I can't take anymore. That something needs to change. I'm tired of feeling this way. We get tired of our own crap. We get tired of feeling the way we feel. We just want to feel better. Mm-hmm. And that was me. I just wanted to feel better. And like you said, mm-hmm. someone with chronic illness, they just want to feel better. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the same in grief. You just want to feel better. I mean, that's the parallel of it. That is grief. Mm-hmm. Um, grief strips us of who we thought we were, who we want to be, how, like you say, how you behave in the world, how you show up in the world. And yes, you got to be in it. You got to feel it. You got to work through it because stuffing it down only makes you more sick and it only makes you feel more angry and resentful and all these things. And for every person, it's different on how long that process will take. Mm-hmm. But what I find that what I find that, breaks my heart is when it takes people years and decades like me took me decades Mm -hmm. to have that moment where yeah I can put new glasses on I can see this differently I can get curious about why I'm feeling the way I'm feeling I can get curious about 
things that can bring healing to my life. And then when you start doing that, it's like more and more and more shows up. Mm. The people show up, the resources, the books, the happenstance conversations, right? That point Mm -hmm. us in another direction that only brings more healing and it's Mm -hmm. cumulative and it's cumulatively positive Mm. where grief is cumulative and it's cumulatively negative. It's the same. It's that duality of, yeah, there can be these really miserable years, but if you don't have hope like you, like I, I just wanted to feel better. I just wanted to help other people. I had actually, I had had a loss at the end of September, 2018, where I was just like, Mm. I just want to feel better. And I just want to help other people. Mm. And it's changed my life. Mm. Having that fire in my belly, like I need to make something, like I just had this strong desire to let not all this suffering be in vain, right? Right? Right. Mm -hmm mold it into something new and positive and inspiring and encouraging for others. Mm. Yeah, I feel that from you and the work that you're doing mm. as well. Thank you. Thank you. So those listening, I'm, I'm going to circle back a little bit to some specific questions that I try and answer. If, if it's not answered directly, I try and ask um, a few questions just to the listener direct insight into the educational piece. So if they themselves don't identify themselves as a griever, which many of us don't, but newsflash, all of us grieve something. <laughs> so we're all grievers in, in a, at the heart of it. But um, what did you find most unhelpful? And I know you spoke about not feeling validated and things like that, but what Is there anything else you'd like to share on that? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think that what I found most unhelpful was the pressure that I felt from other people um, to have to continue to be who I've always been to them while I'm going through my grief. And um, almost for these expectations to be put on top of me to continue to be this awesome friend or this um, ever steady sister or, you know, to not have the grace to be broken and to know that grief does break us and it shakes up our world and how we show up. And a lot of times when, depending on what the loss is that we're experiencing, we go through a bit of role shifting and also an, a, like almost an identity crisis crisis of who am I now that this has been, you know, no longer a part of my life or in my life. And, um, I don't think that unless people are going through that or have gone through some sort of grief or loss like that, that they really understand. And therefore there can be this sense of judgment of, you know, upon us of we're not, we're not doing it right. I felt a lot of criticism from those when I was going through the darkest seasons in my life where I felt instead of feeling support of being carried by them, um, I actually felt the opposite that they were thinking of how I wasn't able to continue to give the way that I always have been a giving person. And that was incredibly hurtful to me. 
um, to realize that their motives were pretty self-focused on, you know, you're not doing this for me anymore. And that makes you a selfish person versus realizing actually when people are able to truly put themselves in our shoes, they're not going to be thinking about themselves. They're going to be thinking about, wow, I had no idea that you are struggling so much. Like, what can I do? How can I show you that I love, I love and I'm in this? Um, so I think it takes, it takes a pretty emotionally healthy and um, mature person who I think can kind of put themselves on the back burner to meet us where we're at in our grief without making it about them <laughs> and judging uh, us and criticizing. I don't, I don't know if you found that to be true for you. Um, I'd be curious. I think a byproduct of being a Buffalo and like hitting your grief head on, like meeting mm-hmm. it head on and going through it. Um, yeah. You come out of the other side, a more compassionate person. Yeah. So you are more able, you are better able to, here's the deal. If you think about it, Think of your heart as, okay, just imagine your heart. And if you're filled with so much grief and despair, not even despair, maybe just sad, just so full of sadness and anger and resentment. Like you said, maybe bitterness, even it's like, it's like sludge. Imagine like it's just sludge on your heart. Right. And as you start to process and work through and, some of that sludge kind of just dissipates, right? Kind of mm-hmm. is replaced with probably more light. Mm. You know, we're going to show up with that light to other people. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that we can really do that. I think a lot of people think they are, mm. but a lot of people are still saying hurtful and harmful things that they don't realize they're saying and unintentionally. But it's based on what we've all been taught, you know, the grieve alone, don't feel bad, all those things I mentioned before, mm-hmm. and not really processing and addressing our own doorstep. I talk a lot about that. Like, we got to sweep our own doorsteps. Mm-hmm. And if we don't even understand or know our own boundaries, mm-hmm. we are not going to know and understand others. So then that just creates more conflict in our lives, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. I would say it really was a boundaries issue. I think that I didn't recognize at the time that I really needed to set up a boundary where those things were being said that were just adding pain on top of grief. You know, the grief is already hard enough to go through, but when you add those extra criticisms or pressure or inadequacy, um, it's just unbearable. And that's, I would say, at least with chronic illness, what I've heard from the majority of people, the illness is hard, but it was feeling from people that they weren't believed and that they weren't enough as a result. That was what made it just unbearable. So then what is one tip that you would give others who are dealing with chronic illness and the grief of that probably grief otherwise all of it together what what was your one tip yeah so my tip is I think of this quote from Oprah actually that says turn your wounds into wisdom 
And so I think that that quote even kind of captures what we were talking about earlier is kind of the, um, the reframe or the mindset shift that if we let it, grief really has a way of stripping us down to our core and shaping us into, you know, more compassionate, more wise, um, more purposeful people. And by finding the opportunity within our grief or our loss, we can use what happened to us to bring good in others' lives. And it's a result actually of, like you said, like facing into our pain, um, like a buffalo, just heading it, hitting it head on versus numbing it out or prolonging the pain um, by just letting ourselves feel it and be in the moment um, and having permission to, to feel the, the loss, the sadness, even the anger that might mask as sadness. And it's actually by going through that, that we are able to come out on the other side and reframe the that loss and um, then shift our mindset really from a place of pain to one of purpose. And I guess I do want to kind of offer the disclaimer that I know there's a phrase going out there called like toxic positivity. And I think that, um, you know, a lot of people will try to like, you know, kind of wish the sadness or the grief away with kind of positivity and, you know, just like, and I, and I want to bring emphasis that this is definitely not that, you know, by, by facing our grief and processing, bringing healing, working through it, you know, whatever that looks like for us, you know, I really see that this is, this is contrary to that. It's having processed our grief so deeply that we're able to discover beauty and purpose and wisdom from in it. And as a result, we can bring that as a gift to others. So yeah, I guess bringing and realizing that our wounds do bring wisdom and for us to be able to find um, not just why is this happening to me, but what can I learn from this and how can I use this experience in my life to, to be shaped into the person that I was always created to be and to help others to become that as well. One tip I, or one thing I want to ask you then too, because I know that that process, like we mentioned earlier, is not like a quick fix. It's not like you wake up one day and, oh, just shifted my mindset. All right, let's roll. Let's start healing, you know? So do you have a different tip for someone who is just like not there yet? Like I'm not there yet. Like I, I'm, I'm still like, I'm really feeling this. I'm really deep in it. I don't need your positivity talk. I don't need your, you know, like whatever it is. What is your tip for them? Cause that's very, I think it's a very different kind of tip. Yes, I agree. And I appreciate you asking that because I think that, um, when I was in that place, I wouldn't have been ready, I think to hear that. And I think that one of the, one of the ways actually that we can, um, it's kind of counterintuitive, but kind of move ourselves towards healing is accepting ourselves exactly where we're at um, with no judgment and no shaming um, and truly giving that safe space to. So I think really what it is, is uh, turning that compassion that we might so readily give to like a best friend or just naturally think, you know, you sue the crying baby to turn that compassion around towards ourselves, And for whatever we feel like we might not be getting from those in our lives, but to realize that there is an inner knowing of what we need 
and we can give that to ourselves. And I know that there's a, a word in coaching called like an even counseling called validation. And the irony is that by validating the emotion that we feel around that, you know, that situation, it actually helps us release and let go of it. Um, so an example of validation might be, um, you know, if someone's feeling their feeling, let's see, what's the emotion that I want to pick on? Um, I think rage, like if, okay. if I can just feel like, I mean, if this, I mean, cause like in 2014, I was having physical symptoms. I was having overall body aches and yeah. headaches and all these different, my hair was falling out. And mm. for me, it was grief. Um, yeah. I did, I did find out I had um, Epstein-Barr reactivation. Mm. Yeah. Which I'm still kind of learning about. Um, it's like mm. mono in your body that's reactivated, but it's, mm-hmm. um, I, I really don't even know much about it, actually. I'm just... Mm nothing was really done about it, put it that way. So I'm still like in the research mode of that, but it's almost like rage against the self is Mm. my body is just fighting against me. I can imagine like that's my experience is nothing in comparison to probably what you went through or anybody else. And I'm not meaning to compare, but Mm. I can, I think I'm empathetic enough. I can put myself in your shoes and I would I think I would mm-hmm. feel rage, rage to myself, against myself, angry at myself that my body is, you know, showing up for me in that way. Like my body, it's mm-hmm. almost because we have a relationship to our bodies, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's like, my body is just fighting me. My body isn't supporting yeah. me. My body isn't allowing me to live my life. Like, you know, mm-hmm. absolutely. And I, I love that that's the word that you chose because I think that, well, for me growing up, anger was not acceptable in our home. Uh, It was not a okay emotion. And it's been a process for me to, uh, to work through that anger and that rage that I have felt. And so I think the first step um, of really being able to, to grieve, I think is to validate that and, and to say that it, you know, anyone in your shoes experiencing and going through what you're going through would feel rage right now. And like to normalize that and say, of course you feel rage. Like, of course you feel so angry right now. And that is okay. And that is not something that you need to try to change. Like one thing that I've heard is emotions are emotions they're fluid that they will, they will change over time when it's, when it's time, but to not try to rush that process, but to sit with that, um, and allow ourselves to release it in ways that are healthy. And so for rage, you know, I know that some people, someone actually recently gave me the idea as they write messages on dishes that they were told about themselves or things that um, were just hurtful messages and they would break the plates of just like a way of like breaking that, that liar, those hurtful messages. And to really have to with anger, especially it is physical. Like you're saying, like it can cause our heart to beat fast or our face to get red and 
to have a, some sort of physical way that we can release that, like, you know, a hard run or a walk or boxing or um, yelling into a pillow, like that really giving ourselves that permission to have that be released in a, in a healthy way and get it out of our bodies. So it doesn't immobilize inside our bodies is really, I think the process to, um, to move forward and, and to feel free of it. Yeah. If we think about stress and like cortisol is the stress hormone, I would imagine that endorphins are the opposite of that. Mm. Right. So what can we do to combat cortisol? Well, we need more endorphins, right? So, I mean, there's plenty of research behind exercise, right? Mm -hmm. That it's good for our mental health. And so Mm -hmm. with that note, though, with autoimmune, you feel really tired and exhausted, right? Mm -hmm. So how do you, what is your suggestion for that? Like, do you, like, can you combat fatigue with exercise? Like, does, or Mm. is that, you know, did you, what did you find for yourself in that regard? That's a good question. I think it really depends on the person and, you know, their particular diagnosis and where they're at in their healing. Um, Because there, there were definitely times when I was just way too sick, I was barely getting off the couch or out of bed, much less exercising. You know, I think for some people, that's like, like, you don't Mm -hmm. get it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, That's why I brought it up. (laughs) Yeah. So I think finding, um, you know, I think that's why I think I've, I've found writing to be so powerful or even a voice memo that you don't intend to send to anyone, but even the power of speaking something out loud and recording yourself of just getting it out. Um, again, I think something that is, it's leaving your body in some way through writing or through yelling or through um, some sort of like even music and feeling the music, I think that's really, it's powerful. And I guess whatever way, I guess, you know, we can experiment in whatever way kind of is speaking to us or, you know, being somewhat um, creative and how we can find ways to work through these emotions. Listen to your intuition, right? That's right. Yeah. Follow the nudges. Things keep showing up in your life. Maybe you, you know, keep seeing dancing with the stars and friend tells you, oh, we went dancing last night and someone sends you like the dancing emoji. And it's like, what's with all this dancing? Maybe I need to go dancing. You know, the universe yeah. sends us messages all the time. And mm-hmm. I think we just don't really aren't as present to see them mm-hmm. and recognize them mm-hmm. for what they're worth. Right. Mm-hmm. Is there anything else you would like to add? Um, I guess I just want to say how much I really do appreciate the the conversation um, and allowing the grieving voices to be shared and collectively knowing that we're not alone in our suffering, even if our suffering looks differently. Um, I think talking about it is is therapeutic, and I think having others hear um, a share is it's reminding us that you know, whether our circumstances do look different, you're right. We all have, we all are grievers and there, we all have experienced loss or pain in some capacity. And so um, finding that solidarity or commonality amongst us that we're all working, you know, towards that healing. But I did want to ask you a question. So I guess 
as you, you know, done this podcast, I am curious what sort of, you know, as you're encouraging people and society to talk about grief, how, how do you set them up in a way that's going to encourage healing versus um, setting them up for more hurtful responses from well-meaning but uninformed people? Well, this platform started because I knew there was a need. I talked about starting this podcast for months, months, and it took me a lot to get my courage up because <laughs> uh, it was just another thing to learn, you know, and I'm not afraid of learning. I love learning. I'm give me a challenge to learn something. And I, I love learning, but my why for doing it and to go through all the unknown of it is because I know the need is there. And the education piece is so important to me because it is the generational learning, the things that we all grow up learning, these um, the myths of grief that are so universal and why the grief recovery method program is written so brilliantly is because we've all been told at some point or another, whether it's a non-versation or vocally, grieve alone. Society is uncomfortable with their own grief, so they're not comfortable with us sharing ours. So well, I guess I'm going to grieve alone. Time heals all wounds. You just need to let time pass. Oh, well, you're not over it by now. You know, it's been a year chronic illness, just change your mindset. Like, did you try yoga? You know, like all these things, like it's, it stems back to what we've been taught because those things become our belief system and our beliefs don't change unless we learn new tools, and new education, mm. unless we're shown a new perspective. Right. Yeah. Right. So that's the premise of this is that grievers everywhere and supporters of grievers, if they're not identifying themselves as a griever, which we all are, can learn, come to a place where they can learn, they can hear other people's stories, they can resonate, they can see themselves in your story and feel hope. You just want people to feel like there's hope. Yeah. And, um, and then also learn something along the way, whether it be new resource that, that my guests share um, just personal story. If they're an expert, you know, I've had someone on for suicide prevention, um, bipolar disorder, topics that are very deep, that are, uh, I mean, just mental illness alone is, it's almost a buzzword now. But grief isn't. Why isn't grief a buzzword? I want grief to be a buzzword. <laughs> so I want us to talk about it like it's not some sort of disease, yeah. you know? It's not, I'm not saying there's a cure for grief. There isn't a cure. We love, that's why we grieve, Mm. you know, and we love ourselves or we have a love for ourselves. Otherwise we don't have hope. Yeah. If we don't have hope, that's the thing. Like if we lose hope, oh man, that's tragic. Mm So um, the uninformed and unhelpful or yeah, unhelpful responses or hurtful responses, it stems from lack of education. Mm. And I think too, when we start to dig into our own, that's when we really learn 
about ourselves too. I think we forget who we are, who we were even before grief entered the room. Mm. You know, and for me, I was eight when, we, when my dad died. My grandma died the year before. Mm. Um, grief's my best friend. Mm. We've been pals for a long time. And uh, I feel like uh, it's made me. It's made me and it's prepared me for this work. So I appreciate that question. It's a good reminder for my why too. Thank you for Thank sharing. You. It definitely does shine through you. And I, I think as you were sharing, it helped me remember that when people are, like you were saying, it is a lack of education. It's a lack of new perspectives to reshape how they think about grief. And so when they do share these hurtful messages that are well-meaning, um, but still hurtful. I think it does, it does help slightly for me knowing that 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 is from their uninformed, uneducated perspective, that it's not an intentional meaning, you know, of hurting me, although it does hurt. Um, but kind of coming from this place of compassion of knowing that I haven't always had, you know, this education either. And so, you know, they're on their journey of healing and, Hopefully soon enough, they, they will be discovering for themselves um, as well, you know, and, and can pass that on, pay it forward to others. And so kind of even that compassion or feeling sorry for those who have been uneducated or haven't had this education is helps me have a little more grace when people are hurtful. Yes, perfect. That's like exactly right. It's, it's changing our perspective, right? It's, it's taking the 1% ownership of how we react. No, rather how we respond mm. to someone who's saying something unhelpful or, un, or that is hurtful. Thank you for that. I'm, I'm in a, I think there's an episode that needs to be done just on that. Maybe my blog post. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. That's yeah. It's a very good point to bring up because there is power in that as a griever, right? To, well, you know, Thank you for sharing, but um, I know it's true for me. That's true for you, and that's yours to own. Mm. I don't need to own that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And letting it go, giving them grace, sending them love, and uh, because we only have control over ourselves, right? Right. Mm-hmm. So where can people find you if they would like to hear more about what you do and about the services you provide and if they'd like to connect with you? Yeah, well, um, they can check out my website at becominglimestrong.com. Um, so my, my goal really is to provide um, this. Uh, I see a lot of resources out there on treatment um, on the physical Um, But I don't see a lot of resources that really give practical tools and, you know, wisdom while we're going through the healing and, you know, how we can set ourselves up for success um, and finding ways of improving our quality of life. And so that that's really my goal. And I, I really love to build relationships and invite those who know that there's more and want to be warriors and fighters together. So, and my uh, social media should be linked on my website as well. If they just want to check that out. It looks like you're becoming lime strong 
on Facebook and Instagram, correct? Uh, yes, I've got a couple. Those are probably going to be where I'm most, you know, most active. I've got a Pinterest board and some things and um, maybe some videos coming up here. But um, as of right now, yeah. Perfect. Love it. Love it. Love it. Such a good conversation that I know applies to probably many. Do you have a statistic on this? Do you have a stat? I, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but do you have a stat for chronic illness in the United States? Um, I do know, obviously, I, you know, because of my experience with Lyme, I do know that um, they say the, the diagnosis of chronic Lyme is uh, roughly 300,000 people per year, and that actually exceeds breast cancer and AIDS combined. Wow. So it is, um, there's not a lot of awareness out there for how prevalent it is. And, you know, I was on the, you know, the health coaching side for a while, and now I'm more on the, you know, life coaching side. And so I've kind of seen both sides, but, um, you know, there just needs to be more awareness and just more, more teaching in general of how, now what you've got this information, how do I continue to live with this information? Well, and especially since it can be congenital, which I didn't understand. I had no idea. So thank you for bringing that to my, my world, to my knowing. You can't unknow something once you know it. Right. Yeah. So uh, thank you for sharing your knowledge and your wisdom, your grieving voice. Um, I've appreciated our time very much. So, and remember when you unleash your heart, you unleash your life. Much love. From my heart to yours, thank you for listening. If you like this episode, please share it, because sharing is caring. And until next time, give and share compassion by being a heart with ears. And if you're hurting, know that what you're feeling is normal and natural. Much love, my friend.